1 Corinthians 13. We're going to read all 13 verses. You can read aloud where you're at tonight. And maybe it's a good thing we read aloud. Years ago when I became a Christian, someone gave me a uh, a gospel tract. It was actually a chick booklet. Uh, Back when the days when the chick tract, I don't know if they're still popular now, but but, uh, it was just basically kind of talking about Christian, uh, how to grow in the spiritual life. And and the recommendation in it was that as a growing Christian, you ought to read 1 Corinthians 13 and Hebrews 11 every day as part of your Bible reading plan. And for many, many years I did that, and I, I probably need to get back to that. I read 1 Corinthians, uh, Hebrews 11 a lot more than I do 1 Corinthians 13. But I can see why. Because with, if we don't read it continuously, if it doesn't embed itself, if the Word of Christ is not dwelling us richly, we just don't tend not to have that kind of love. And let me say this tonight as a preface before we read the Scriptures. We live in an age that's very heartless, lacking compassion, hatred, Meanness, malice. And sad to say, those works of the flesh are manifested in terms of how you're treated at work or how you grew up or people you know. And it's sad to say, we are what we're around. If, you have, if you're around people that are mean and cantankerous and critical, you're going to be like that. Proverbs tells us that. And it's sad to say that you can be saved and still be a mean Christian, malicious. So Paul, right here in between 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14 on the matter of spiritual gifts, he's not putting gifts aside, he's actually elevating gifts and the exercising of the gifts. And so tonight, my prayer is that we have a revival of what Paul's talking about here in 1 Corinthians 13. Because if we don't have this, our our ministry, whatever we do, we're shot. Credibility is not based on what you think of a person. Credibility is based upon what we're going to read here in 1 Corinthians 13. So let's read tonight 1 Corinthians 13. Actually, let me start with chapter 12 and verse 31, and we'll read right right into chapter 13. But covet earnestly the best gifts. Now, I didn't say the most popular gifts. He said the best gifts. And yet... Show I unto you a more excellent way. Now that that's that's the that's the preface. That's the that's if you would the the intro to First Corinthians thirteen. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and have not charity, I am become as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could not remove mountains, so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods 
to feed the poor. And though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profited me nothing. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity bondeth not itself, is not puffed up, does not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoices not in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Look at verse 8. Charity never faileth. But whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part but then shall I know, even as also I am known. And now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three. But the greatest of these is charity. I want to preach tonight a message entitled, The Greatest of These. Father, bless the Holy Word of God. Work in our hearts. I rebuke Satan. I call upon you as the God of peace to bruise Satan under our feet right now. This scenario, Lord, me and our church, we need victory in. I call upon you tonight. Lord, you'd captivate our attention. Bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Holy Spirit speak, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Last week we spent some time doing a survey of chapter 12 and looking at the diversity and the distribution of spiritual gifts. Every Christian has one or more spiritual gifts. We are, those gifts are given to us by the grace of God. Paul talks about the grace of God, its distribution being different for every man. Some of us have a limited number of gifts. Some of us have maybe more than, more than several that God has trusted us with. God wants us to put our gifts to use. I hope last week that uh, all of you took some time to pull down the spiritual gifts test and to review it and determine where you're at. And if you have, I hope that you'll get with a discipler or get with one of the staff members or myself, and we'd be glad to walk you through this to help you understand what your gift sets are and where to go with that. But, you know, he did, Paul did a wonderful, wonderful job in chapter 12, help us understand the importance of gifts and the importance of caring for the body. And, you know, the, part, the body of Christ is made up of many different parts, and we need to be supportive and helpful of each other. But you've got to remember that when Paul was writing this, he wasn't writing to them to, to, to tell them about something they didn't know already. They already knew about spiritual gifts. 
They needed a reminder. That's just like preaching the Bible. I mean, we have to be reminded. There's some passages of Scripture that need to be preached over and over and over again. And there's some passages of Scripture we need to revisit again. I looked at my notes. The last time I preached 1 Corinthians 13 was back in 2017. And I thought, man, that's three years ago. This is something that needs to be preached once a year. We need to kind of revisit this over and over again here. But Paul put this here because of the Corinthian sins. Because as we... Go back a few chapters. The Corinthians, the Corinthian believers, were guilty of the sins of envy. They envied one another. And in chapter 12, they were envying who had what gifts. There was strife. There was divisions. They were going to court against each other. I read today that a very famous author, Christian author, who was in the Southern Baptist Convention, a publishing company he was associated with for many, many years. They parted ways, and uh, he signed a deal with another organization, another uh, Christian, publishing, Christian publishing organization, and they were excited to have him. And the prior organization, again, I don't know all the, all, all the stuff, I just kind of saw a glance at it, so I don't know all the, the depth of it. They, they felt he broke a covenant not to compete, whatever that means, uh, in this realm, uh, in that realm, and they basically sued him. And I'm kind of amazed at that because I, I'm thinking, well, somebody here didn't read uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 here about, about the fact they needed to go to arbitration, kind of work through this, but, you know, sad. There were moral failures in the church. There were those who uh, were stumbling blocks to those who had weaker consciences. And if you look at chapter 12 very, very, very closely, we realize that there was a lot of pride, and the misuse of spiritual gifts. And kind of as the preacher said on Sunday, Brother Woodcock, the core of the problem was the problem of the heart. As we get chapter we are in chapter thirteen tonight. The emphasis of this chapter is the greatest of all Christian virtues. Now, when I say that, I don't want it to sound like holiness takes a back seat to love. Holiness is the supreme attribute of God. Every other attribute. Is an emanation, if I can say that, I'm not even sure that's the right word. Is an emanation of the holiness of God. When we think about an attribute of God, or Christian virtue, it really should be preceded with the word holy as an adjective to, to describe how it's to be exercised. I'm not going to get into tonight the different words used for love. I've done that before. Tonight I don't have time to do that. But the word being used for love here is the highest sounding, the highest word choice of describing how God loves us and how God wants us to love. It's the word agape. The King James translators used the word charity to describe it. First time I read this, when I was a young Christian, I thought that was strange. I scratched my head many times. I thought, why did they use the word charity to describe it? And we have to understand that the word charity in 1611 was, had a much higher, much more dignified, much more elaborate, 
much more extensive idea about love in this description than we use today. Charity, in our mind, is a, the Salvation Army, and I'm not saying that in a demeaning way, where you're giving to somebody who's going to give to the poor. The word charity back in that day was a word that meant you gave, you gave your all from a heart of love. It embodied sacrifice. It embodied Christ dying on the cross for our sins. And the King James translators, in describing its application in, as a Christian virtue, as a spiritual virtue, used the word charity because everybody back in that day, as they read that, they understood, man, he's talking about giving everything, not just to close off your back. You're just giving everything to somebody. It's giving your all. There's no pretension. There's no bias. There's no apprehension in what you're doing. I mean, you're giving your all. It's giving, giving all that you can. The word agape that's used in the New Testament is found 117 times. Used many, many times in chapter 13. Charity is the pinnacle of Christian maturity. It's the top of the mountain after you've ascended 8,000 feet. It's the 30,000 foot level of an airplane as it gets to its, the proper height it needs to be at, the proper altitude. And if you go to 2 Peter 1, we're just giving you an introduction here for a minute. 2 Peter 1 helps understand this agape love, this charity in the context of spiritual maturity. Brother and sister in Christ, the word charity, the virtue charity, is not an option. It's an obligation. It's a mandate. It's a command. It is to possess us, and through that possession... It is to be exhibited in everything we do. And so, as we understand where we're at, you might be someone who mistakenly thinks you're a mature Christian because you have a lot of knowledge. But I'm going to remind you, knowledge puffeth up. Knowledge is itself is not an indicator that, that, that you're, you're mature. And you might be someone who mistakenly thinks because you've been in church for a period of time, or you have an office in church, maybe you serve on a staff, or maybe you're a deacon or former deacon, or you're a deacon's wife, or maybe because you're a Sunday school teacher or a Sunday school teacher's spouse, or maybe because you're a club sponsor or whatever it may be, that you believe that, that that has brought you to place that because you had some kind of recognition based on external appearances, that that makes you spiritually mature. And I'm going to tell you tonight, that does not make you spiritually mature. Spiritual maturity is a journey. Spiritual maturity is a refining process. Spiritual maturity is what we find in 2 Peter 1, verses 5 to 8. I want you to go there and read it with me. You might have it memorized, but I want you to read it with me. And Paul said, and Peter said, and beside this, notice this, giving all diligence. Add to your faith. The starting point of Christian life is faith. Amen? Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. Faith is the means by which we receive Jesus Christ as Savior. It starts with our faith. We walk by faith and not by sight. You say, well, I don't have enough faith. No, you had enough faith to get saved. You need to add to your faith right now. And I want to encourage you tonight, these are building blocks. We're walking a mountain. Uh, several of our men in church, I'm looking at a couple right now, that they, 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 uh, 
They, they like to climb. They like to ascend. I, I, when, I, when, I, when I go do, do my runs, I like going up hills a little bit because I want to get my heart moving a little bit. I want to I really work that cardio a little bit. I like stair climbers. I like going up. I also like going down when you're out of breath, amen? But I like going up. And the Christian life is ascending. Maturity is ascending. Notice he says, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance. And another word for temperance is self-control. And to temperance, patience. And the word patience is not talking about strictly circumstances. It's talking about with people. And to patience, notice, godliness. And to godliness, brotherly kindness. And would you notice the last phase? Brotherly kindness, charity. Boy, you start working through this. And a lot of us, start, a lot of us have been around for a little bit. We start realizing, boy, we've got a long way to go. And by the way, that ought to be your attitude tonight. I've got a long way to go. Amen? I have a ways to go. Just when you thought you are making progress, you haven't gone anywhere. And I want us to understand as we get into this chapter tonight, do not mistakenly think because you've been around for a little bit and because you know all 66 books of the Bible, you can tell me that order, and you've memorized a couple chapters of the Bible, or you know how to teach a certain lesson, or you can alliterate, whatever it may be. Don't mistakenly think that you've arrived. Because Paul, in chapter 13, our study tonight, is going to tell us our shortcoming, our shortfall. And so notice tonight three things about love. I'm going to make this simple, but I'm going to make it pretty profound. Number one, I want you to notice the preeminence of love. In verses 1 to 3, Paul addresses this matter of the preeminence of love. Now, preeminence means it must have first place. It's of the highest priority. Uh, we would use the word preeminence to describe God and His sovereignty. We describe Jesus Christ that in all things He might have the preeminence. Now, love, which, is, which again, as I said, is an emanation of the holiness of God. Love, agape, love, loving like God loves loving as Jesus Christ loves us, that is to be preeminent in the life of every Christian. So notice how Paul helps us understand the preeminence of love. First of all, he speaks about the coveted gifts. Now the Corinthians were mesmerized, and honestly, they were so proud. They were so proud. They were boasting about the coveted gifts. Now the coveted gifts, as we'll see tonight, for the most part, were the sign gifts. Remember I talked about the sign gifts, miracles, tongues, healing, prophecy. The sign gifts are temporary gifts. You need to, now you need to have that doctrine down tonight. I mean, nothing else. Before we get to chapter 14, you need to be convinced in your heart and mind by the Word of God that the sign gifts do not exist any longer. They're done. They're done. And those who say they have a sign gift today, underlying their boastfulness about that is their pride. And let me say this tonight. I mentioned about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The filling of the Spirit has been, been equated to the baptism of the Spirit. The two are distinctly different. 
The baptism of the Spirit occurs at conversion. It's a once, once and for all event that happens at conversion. The filling of the Spirit occurs over and over again. The baptism of the Spirit is that you have the Holy Spirit, is the, that you have the Holy Spirit in you. But the, the filling of the Spirit is when the Spirit has all of you. The filling of the Spirit is necessary for serving God at our maximum capacity of doing all that we can for God. So he says here, he speaks about tongues in verse 1. He says, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels. And he's talking about the, the, the ability to speak in a, in a foreign language, not in some unknown gibberish. The word is glossalia. Language. And in some cases, a dialect, an understandable language. What about speak of the tongues of angels? That is kind of linking itself to the next thought about getting into the area of prophecies. The Corinthians coveted the tongues speaking in foreign languages, speaking in eloquence and the ability. You have to remember now, we did not have all, they did not have all of the completed word of God, said we. They did not have all the completed word of God at the time this was written, when those sign gifts were given. And so God gave his revelation through various means. And one of those means was me, if you go back to Acts chapter 2, we read about, we read about these, these men of God, they got, and we'll say more about it next week, but they got up and they, they started speaking in the tongues and languages of other men. Of the Medes and Parthians and Egyptians and so forth like that. And they said, how did these men do? These are Jewish men. Why did they know all these languages? How did they get up here on the Feast of, of Pentecost? <laughs> they got up here and just started speaking all these languages. And they said, well, maybe these men are drunken. I will tell you, a drunken man does not know a foreign language. Then he goes down to prophecy. The prophecy speaking. It's one of the speaking. I talked about sign gifts, they're speaking gifts, and they're the serving gifts. And prophecy was when God gave a divine revelation at that moment. And the one who received that, which could have been a man or a woman, was allowed to stand up and give that revelation. It was understandable. It was something that was not contained in the Word of God at that moment. It was something that God was doing. It was foretelling. He talks about an understanding of mysteries. And that ties in with knowledge. And knowledge was just having an understanding. Because remember, they a big thing for them, especially for Corinthians, so especially for the Grecians, with this matter of knowledge. You know, some people are just, uh, they're very mesmerized by intellectualism. And some like to impress with their intellectualism. And those Corinthians were no different. They were, they, he said, though I have all knowledge... Then he talked about faith. Now, faith is with us. We still have that gift today. He says, though I have all faith so I can move a mountain. That's great faith. Thank God for members in a church who have great faith. That's the kind of faith that, in prayer, that gets things done. He says, though I have the faith that can move mountains. And then he talked about something else which is not necessarily a gift as much as it's a virtue. He says, uh, and though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor. He says, now, that sounds like charity, not so, but that's not what he's saying there. He says, where someone can just say, well, okay, they need some money. Here. No, no emotion to it. There's no feeling. To it. it doesn't touch them. They just basically say, here, just do, help them out. Give them some money. He says, though I give all my goods to feed the poor. 
Right action, but no motive. And then he is talking about giving his body to be burned. Many different thoughts on that, but perhaps the greatest thought would be probably he's thinking about some, a Christian who would even be willing to have his body burned at the stake. He talks about the coveted gifts. He talks about those things that were popularized in the church, the Baptist church at Corinth. They were popularized. That was, that, that was the buzz inside the church. That's what people came to outdo one another in terms of faith or prophecy or tongues or knowledge or mysteries or outgiving, you know, where their, their giving was not motivated out of a heart of love. Their giving was motivated to outdo somebody else. Now, there are the coveted gifts, but there's the commandment of God. And Paul, in every one of these verses, in ver- these first three verses, alludes to charity. Now, I said earlier, agape love is speaking about loving like God loves. Now, we have to understand something. When God saved you and me, God saved you and me to be loving people. God saved you and me to not only be loving people, but to be lovable people as well. Amen? Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2. Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us, and has given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. That's a whole message by itself. But notice, walk in love as Christ also has loved us. That is a command of God. You said, well, Pastor, we're in the 21st century and, you know, we're in a postmodern age. And so I understand that, but we're supposed to walk in love. You don't understand, Pastor, I got burned by somebody at church. I understand that. So have I. But you've got to walk in love. You know, walk in love. That is your demeanor. You're not to stagnate in hate. Preferential treatment to walk in love. Notice John 13, verses 34 to 35. Great, great passage. And I love how Jesus brought this in in the midst of everything he talked about in John chapter 13 because he talked about serving one another by washing each other's feet and so forth like that. He's teaching some lessons there. But notice what he said because at that point in time, there was strife and division among the apostles. He said, a new commandment I give unto you. That ye love one another as I have loved you. That you also love one another. That's agape love. It's not phileo love. And there's nothing wrong with phileo love. Sometimes people describe phileo love, which is brotherly love. They, they, they define it as being less than agape. No, it's not. It's a fair, it's a, 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 a phileo love, a brotherly kindness is, is basically, a, it's a brother to brother love. There's just a sentiment that's just a closeness to it. It's a, it's a human closeness to it. But this agape love is where God, God in a supernatural way is able to help us to love the unlovable and love more the lovable. A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you, and that you, lost, uh, that you also love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have loved one to another. Wow. Discipleship 101. The mark of a true disciple of Jesus Christ is that you love one another. 
Romans 5, 5. Notice the work of the Holy Spirit. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is, love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given to us. Now that verse right there substantiates at the moment of salvation, the Holy Ghost working your heart and mind produces the love of God. The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Hey, listen, Jesus is promoting the love of God through our life. The Holy Spirit is promoting the love of God in life. And God himself is promoting the love of God in our hearts. Look at 1 Thessalonians 4, 9. But it's touching brotherly love. You need not that I write unto you. For ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. But Justin, I was thinking about our discipleship curriculum. And as I was working on this, I thought, you know, nowhere in our curriculum, and pastoral stuff, I think you would agree with me on this, nowhere in our curriculum, nowhere does it have one chapter dedicated about the practice of agape love. And yet Jesus Christ himself said in John 13, verses 34 to 35, he says here, a new commandment I give unto you. And he says, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples, that you love one another. I don't know about you guys, but I think tonight, I think that ought to be part of our discipleship curriculum, amen, right in the beginning. I think every person needs to not only be indoctrinated, I think they need to have embedded in their heart the fact that God saved us to be a loving people. Now, let's go back to what we're talking about here. The preeminence of love. They're the coveted gifts, there's a commandment of God. But notice, if you would, verses 1 to 3, there is a, there is a critical glitch Paul starts off this first part of chapter 13 by addressing a very bothersome, missing element in the exercise of spiritual gifts. And he says here in verse 1, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and have not charity, I get up, I'm endued with this gift of being able to speak a foreign language or even I speak with the tongue of an angel in the sense of a prophetic utterance. is not gibberish. I have this great ability and I just come off thundering with my message. But there's no love behind it. He said, and he was using a, a phraseology that was very familiar in Corinthian days. I'm like, Annoying, a lot of annoying noise. Annoying noise is 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock at night, you're just about to fall asleep, and here's all this crazy noise outside. You know what I'm talking about? And there, he equates it to pagan rituals in Corinthian society. The pagan rituals, they had two pagan gods that they worshipped, Dionysius and Sibel, where at the worship of these two pagan fertility gods, people would take their symbols and they would be clanging on the symbols and there would be the braying of trumpets. And it got to the place when you heard it, everybody heard it, but after a long period of time, it became very annoying. It got to the place where it just was too loud 
Mr. Tuna, have you ever been in a place where the music was just so loud, it blew your ears out, and you're like, please turn that off, amen? You ever been sitting in your car, somebody comes up, he's got the speakers full blast, you kind of wonder, does this guy get, does he even hear anything? And he's going full blast, so bl- it's going so loud, your car is bouncing back and forth with his car. I mean, your car, your car is feeling the vibration that you kind of wish, please turn that thing off. Well, that's what he's talking about here. He's saying the clanging of the, he says, he says if, you don't, if you can speak those things, he says, you don't have love in what you're doing. He says, you know what, there's something missing in your life, because all you you are is annoying noise to other people there. Then you look at verse 2. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mystery and all knowledge, he's pulling out all that together. And though I have all faith that, so that I can remove mountains. And he says, and I have not charity. He says, I am nothing. I'm nobody. Now I want to tell you, those people, those Corinthian believers who had very highly inflated egos... And very proud of their gifts. I mean, right at that moment, Ben Paul is like, he just like he took a knife and he punctured their tire. I mean, he's starting to let some air out. I mean, he punctured some pretty big eagles that moment of time. He said, listen, you're just like tingling, uh, uh, he said, like you're sounding brass and tinkling cymbals, and you're nothing. He says, I don't care what your office is, I don't care what your prestige is, and I don't care how great your gift is, and how great your faith is, and how much you're knowledgeable about the things, those those spiritual things. He said, if all that is is, is done without the love of God work your heart, you're nothing. Verse 3 says, though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, I have not charity. He says, it profiteth me nothing. Without God's love working in our spirit. And may I say tonight, the filling of the spirit should depict itself in the fruit of the spirit. And I remind you, the first of the fruit of the spirit is love. Without God's love working in our spirit, he says we're nothing. We're worthless. We're zero value. That's pretty demoralizing, right? (laughs) Zero value. And let me just say this. Look, look again, verse 3. You, you do these great works, and there's no underlying love behind it. He says, he says, it profit me nothing. You know what he's saying there? You're a detriment to the work of God. That's pretty powerful. There's a preeminence of love. So Paul now has just deflated some egos. He's just shattered their trumping of their gifts. And notice in verses 4 to 8, Paul now tells us about the properties of love. We see the preeminence of love, and now he explains us the properties of love. I'm reminded as I read this about a Peanuts cartoon. And you know how, if you remember, you know, the Peanuts, Charlie Brown and Lucy always had, it, always had, a, you know, always had a, a feud with each other. And she's standing there with her arms folded with that famous Lucy frown on her face. And so Charlie Brown comes up to her very passively and he says, he says, Lucy, you must be more loving. This world needs love. You have to let yourself love to make this world a better place. To which Lucy, as you know, she just had, a, she had an anger problem. She needs to get enrolled into an anger management class in, in church, amen? And she looked at him, she said, look, blockhead, the world I love is people I can't stand. And I'm reminded as you think about it, something humorous like that, I'm reminded tonight that do we really understand the properties of love? And so Paul realizes that these people, they're agreeing with him, but they really don't understand the properties of love. And so he explains it to us. Let's go through it there, okay? The first thing he says in verse 3, he says, Charity, at verse 4, charity suffereth long. 
And what does that mean? You say love is patient. You know, the hardest thing about patience is not our circumstances. Even though James chapter 1 verses 1 to 3 tells us that. That's why God puts trials in our lives. He's speaking specifically about being patient with people. You remember, we got into 1 Corinthians 11, and we were talking about the Lord's table and the agape love feast and, and how they were upping one another and just a lot of bad practice going on. Paul came up pretty hard in 1 Corinthians 11 about that. And um, he hasn't finished where he's left off of that because he knew that there still was a lot of work to be done. But you know, one of our, our, greatest, our greatest problems we have is that all of us have a different tolerance level. And it comes into the church. And certain personalities have zero patience for other people. One early church leader said this, the word for suffereth long is macrothumia, if you look up, look up the word. He said it described a man who's been very, very badly wronged. And in his power has the ability to take vengeance on the person who did him wrong. But chooses not to do so. He takes the high road. President Abraham Lincoln had a Secretary of Defense, Edward Stanton. Edward Stanton was very, the most qualified man for the job. Hands down, Abraham Lincoln knew when he was making, appointing the men for his cabinet, Edward Stanton was the man. Even though his closest advisor said, President Lincoln, Edward Stanton is your greatest critic. Edward Stanton is going to be a thorn in your side. He will, he will, he will say things against you. He will do things against you. He, he, he may not be your best choice. Abraham Lincoln, in a very meekish way, said, no, he's the right man for the job. I'm going to put him there. Even during that, that term before President Lincoln was assassinated, Stanton took every shot he could when they had cabinet meetings, and one-on-one, he took a stab in Lincoln and always did something to either uh, make him look foolish or make him look shameful. He just did these terrible things. Even a place where people, people around that felt really much on edge, that they really, wanted to, they really just wanted to take Edward Stanton by the neck and just say, Sir, you, you are being totally just... Kind of, like, kind of like the commentator last night, the arbiter, whoever it was, that was moder- the moderator for last night's debate, kind of like that. But when Abraham Lincoln was assassinated, his body was laid at state, Stanton, with profuse tears coming out of his eyes, said this, There lies the greatest ruler of men the world has ever seen. Abraham Lincoln was patient with Edward Stanton. Charity suffered long. Look at, look, look at another thing. Look at another property in verse 4. Charity is kind. Origen, Origen the early church father, said, He defined it this way. Love is sweet to all. Love is kind. I mean, you don't have to define that. 
Paul mentioned Ephesians 4. One of the problems of people that day is they, they lack kindness. He said, be kind one to another. There was ruthlessness going on among the relationships there. Can I just say this tonight? Please look at me from the camera. Would you be a kind Christian? Would you be kind? You know, so many people have, they bottle up things inside of them. I'll tell you what, if you bottle up, if you've got stuff bottled up, you don't have a prayer life. You haven't talked to God about it. Because I promise you, if you load it at the, at the throne of grace, God will get that out of you. You'll come out with a sweeter personality. You say, well, it's my culture. Well, culture, if it's your culture that's causing it, your culture conflicts with God. Charity envieth not. Look at verse 4. First Samuel 18 speaks about Saul. He eyed David. He had envy towards him. Love does not envy. Hey, these Corinthian believers, the one who spoke in tongues, envied the one who could prophesy. The one who could prophesy envied the one who could understand all mysteries. The one who had faith envied the one who could burn his body. The one who would, who would, would burn his body envied the one who had faith. I mean, they were envying one another. Why don't I have that gift? Why can't I do it? I mean, I still hear that today. I hear that around the church from grown adults. How come I don't get to do this? How come, how come they get to do this? How come they get this? It seems like there's favoritism all the way. Listen, charity envieth not. Instead of looking at what somebody else does, why don't we look at what God has done for us, amen? And if you say, well, what did God do for me? God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die for your sins. I think that's a great amount of things that He did for you. He says, charity envy not. Notice verse 4 again. Charity vaunteth not itself. What is He talking about there? Charity or love is not self-exalting. There's a self-effacing quality in love. Notice in verse 4 again, charity is not puffed up. In other words, it is not inflated with its own importance. William Carey was one of the great missionaries. Days gone by. He converted from being a Presbyterian to a Baptist from reading his Bible. Amen. He wrote one of the greatest sermons on a baptism by immersion you can find on the internet. He wrote it while he was on his ship, on the ship, on the way from England, from England all the way over to India. He was a knowledgeable man. He was a very intelligent man, very well read up man. He was a man that was came, that who translated the Bible no fewer than thirty four Indian dialects. But people in his day either loved him or they despised him. He was at a state, a state function event. He made his living as a cobbler, fixing shoes, mending shoes. He was despised by many people. And one particular man, a very elitist type of man, saw him there. And they said, oh, William Carey, the shoemaker. And he meant to demean him. Now, you think with me for just a minute. If somebody says something sarcastic like that about you, you probably at the wrong time, and if you weren't prayed up in the Spirit when you went there, you probably would be a little bit on defensive, a little bit on edge about there, probably would just, you know, would react to that. And William Carey did not react to that. William Carey, I tell you how, the kind of how God's love worked in his heart. He said this. When the man said that, oh, William Carey, the shoemaker, he said, sir, not a shoemaker, just a cobbler. Just a cobbler. 
Charity's not puffed up. Notice verse 5. Charity does not behave itself unseemly. In other words, love does not behave great without grace, gracelessly. There's courtesy. There's tactfulness. There's politeness. Does not behave itself unseemly. It doesn't come across as crude or rude. Charity seeketh not her own. Look at verse 5. It does not insist upon its own rights. It's my way or the highway. It gives deference. Verse 5 again. Charity is not easy to provoke. We all need that. Listen, it's just it's someone who can keep themselves under control. It doesn't fly up into a temper. It doesn't get easily exasperated with people. It's not easily provoked. Notice verse 5 again. Charity thinketh no evil. It doesn't look at people and find, try to find a skeleton in the closet. Look, look, there's some people in life, all you do is try to find something wrong with somebody else. You want to point out the errors, all their problems. I'm going to tell you right now, you don't have God's love in you if you're doing anything like that. It's not in your life. That's wicked, by the way. If nobody's told you, I'm going to tell you tonight, it's a sin. Don't turn me off right now because I'm not done. Charity rejoices not in iniquity. It finds no pleasure in doing evil. And it doesn't find pleasure in evil in other people's lives. Verse 6. Charity rejoices in the truth. If you're in the dark side, you like to hear the gossip and the lies and the malice of malicious things. You need to get back here to verse 6 where it says, Charity rejoices in the truth. Notice verse 7, charity beareth all things. It's very enduring. Now that's on the receiving end. Charity will endure insults, injury, criticism. We're not going to like it or disappointment. Look at verse 7, charity believeth all things. Listen, charity believes the best about people. You've never, you don't have children You don't understand that. Because when you have children, you want to believe the best for your children. You want the best for them. Love is trusting. And it's hope and faith in the best in people. Look at verse 7 again. Charity hopeth all things. It never ceases to hope. It has hope. Well, this person can improve. This can be better. We can reach them. I can be more forgiving. I can be more patient. Look at verse 7 again. Charity endureth all things. It bears everything with triumphant fortitude. Did you notice this tonight? In four verses, he gave 15 properties about agape love. How could a one, a four-letter word in our English language Bring forth 15 substantial properties. And Paul is going off and he's telling, listen, love is preeminent. Love has its properties. We have to understand, as we do in self-evaluation, probably more important than trying to figure out what spiritual gift I have or I don't have. Maybe it's more important for me to understand, I need to do a spiritual assessment based upon 1 Corinthians 13. Which of these properties is lacking in my love? 
But I promise you, there's nobody, that none of us here, that have an excess of these properties. And there's none of us that really have, and they exercise all these properties. And there's none of us that really exhibit those properties the way we should. We have to just come to the realization, there are some things that are lacking. No wonder Paul said, I can have the gift of tongues, and the gift of prophecies, and the gift of knowledge. And I can have the gift of faith, and I can give my body to be burned, and I can give, I can give all my goods to the poor. But he said, if I, have, if I don't have all these properties of love, I'm nobody, and it profit me nothing. But I want you to notice the permanence of love. Now, this is where he ties it all together. The permanence of love. You'll notice in verses 9 to 13, Paul talks about that which is in part, that which is perfect. You want to remember that as we get into this. Because I want to tell you honestly, Paul as an apostle, and also the founding pastor of that church, was led by the Holy Spirit of God to help give correction to a church that was totally blinded and just in the dark about their use of, of their lack of Christian love Gape love in their lives. And he's told them that love must be preeminent. And he's told them the 15 properties of love. Now he wants them to understand there's some things you guys are doing now, there's some things you believers are doing now that are, that are temporary, but there's one thing that is permanent. There's one thing that endures. There's one thing that's all. And he mentions it here. He says in verse 8, Charity never faileth. Charity never faileth. He says in verse 13, Now abide in faith, hope, charity, these three. Three great virtues of the Christian life. But he said the greatest of these, the greatest of these is charity. Now I want you to notice how Paul helps us understand why this is permanent and why it must be permanently working in our life the way Paul described it. First of all, what you notice, he speaks about that which has faded. But whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. Now these people who had these gifts... And they were the more boisterous personalities in the church who had big egos, who were causing divisions and strife and so forth. Paul just told them something that shattered their visions. He said, your prophecies, there will become a day, prophecies will no longer exist. There's going to come a day where tongues will no longer exist and knowledge will no longer exist. Look what he says here. He says, they shall fail, they shall seize, they shall vanish away. Then he said in verse 9, he said here, he said, for we know in part, we prophesy in part. 
And he says, but that when that which is perfect is come, that which is in part shall be done away. Now, I'm going to give you a statement because I'm going to get ahead of myself and I'm going to come back to this. God gave those sign gifts because the completed canon of Scripture, the canon of Scripture was not completed. When the canon of Scripture was completed, there was no need for these gifts and they vanished away. God taught, Paul talked about that which is perfect. That which is perfect, has, I believe, has two meanings. The first of those two meanings, number one, is this. The Word of God came. When we got all the completed canon of Scripture, when all the New Testament was finally written, there was no need for these extra revelations. There was no need for tongues. There was no need for prophecies. There was no need for miracles of that nature there, okay? Now, how, he said, how do you know that he's talking about, in verse, in verse 10... How, how do we know that which is perfect has come? Because I'm going to tell you something tonight. If you're not very careful, if you study the commentators, there are some in the commentator realm who will tell you that which is perfect, speaking about the second coming of Christ. I can't fit that in there. I had a former staff member here who believed that. We had a long discussion about it. He was wrong. The Bible's right. That which is perfect, you say, how do you know it's the Word of God? The Word of God itself tells us that. Okay? Because listen to this, Psalms 19.7, the law of the Lord is perfect. Listen to this, 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 to 17, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction, righteousness. But, he says this, that the man of God may be perfect. That which is perfect is come. We don't need to add to the Word of God. We saw that in Revelation chapter 22. We don't have to take away from the Word. We don't need to add the Word. We have the completed Word of God. Amen. But I have to tell you, those sign gifts that they were elevating above everything else in their carnality, those sign gifts, he had to tell them, listen, your tongues and your prophecies and all this other stuff that you're doing, it's going to be gone. That which is fading. But notice, secondly, he speaks about that which is faithful. He said, charity never fails. And now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three. But the greatest of these is charity. Listen, he has just meticulously worked his way through this passage of Scripture. He tells him about the preeminence of love. He tells him, if you don't have it, you're nothing. He's talking about the properties of love. It suffers long, it's kind, etc., etc., etc. And now he's talking about the permanence of love. He says, I want you to know something. Tongues are going to go away. He says, tongues are going to go away. And he says, uh, he says, prophecies are going to go away. And knowledge is going to go away. And miracles are going to go away. But he says, I've got to tell you something. Love's never going to go away. Just as the originator of love, which is God himself, just as the originator, the author of love, God himself is unfailing, love is unfailing. He says, charity never fails. Let me tell you, listen, love covers the multitude of sins, Peter said. There's a lot of things we need a revival in, brother and brothers and sisters in Christ. We need a revival of church attendance. We need a revival of faith. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. We need a revival of our praying uh, Christians, praying people. Let me tell you, if under COVID-19 you are praying less and not more, you need to reevaluate what happened to your prayer spot. We need a revival of the Word of God, but I'm going to tell you tonight, probably the most understated and under, 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 un, uh, the, the one area that we underutilize, the one area we need great revival is a revival of agape love in our lives. Peter said, above all these things, 
Have fervent charity among yourselves, but charity shall cover the multitude of sin. But I want you to notice this next thing. He talked about that which is fading, that which is faithful. But you notice this is the core crux of our message tonight. I want you to notice that which is to be the focus. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, he spake as a child and understood as a child. I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as I am known. Now listen, I've seen many people, as they preach, they've extracted verse 10 out, and over verse 11 or 12, and they start preaching away of that. But I want to tell you, verses 9 to 12 are fully connected to everything we just read. Paul talks about that which is in part. We know in part they did not have completed revelation. He said because we didn't have completed revelation, guess what? Our prophesying is only partial too. We need to have all the word of God. Thank God we have all the word of God. Amen? Now, he said here, we know in part. And then he said in verse 12. Now I know in part. I don't have all of it right now. I don't have all the full knowledge. We have the full revelation, but there's... Hey, listen, you read the Word of God. If you read the Word of God with humility, you just realize there's just some things you don't know. Amen? There's some things you're still learning, some things you're finding out there. And I said earlier that I believe that he's talking about there's two meanings behind the word perfect that's used here. Number one, I believe he's referring, first of all, to the word of God. When that which is perfect has come, we get all the completed word of God. When that which in part should be done away, he's saying at that point in time, everything he said earlier about prophecies and tongues and so forth, they're going to be gone. But I believe there's a second meaning. Did you know the word perfect is the same word that's used for perfect throughout the New Testament? It's the word teleos. The word teleos means, has the idea, the meaning of completeness and full maturity. It's talking about the true spiritual man. Where he's attained the fullness of the stature of Christ, as Paul described. That which is perfect is attaining the apex the mountaintop of Christian maturity. This is the believer who through perseverance, refining by fire, much time in the prayer, much time in the word and in prayer, that by the grace of God has advanced spiritually in his conformity to Christ. Now please understand what Paul's saying here. Paul is going further than just saying the sign gifts are going to be gone. He wants them to understand, brothers and sisters in Christ, you've missed it. When you've been so focused on that which is in part, there's the perfect, the perfecting. And the perfecting is the goal of the Christian life of maturing in Jesus Christ. Of growing in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now, what's Paul referring to? Why is he bringing this up here at this past scripture? Because you've got to go back to chapter 3. And back in chapter 3, Paul said, listen, I want to talk to you about childish things. You are babes in Christ. Babies do things that adults don't do. He said, as a baby in Christ, 
He says, you're not spiritual. He says, I cannot speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto beige. Remember the word teleos is talking about the full spiritual man. And so he told them in chapter 3, they bore the mark of a babyish, immature Christian. They were milk fed. Yes, they could read the Bible. And yes, they know the doctrines of Scripture. And yes, they went through discipleship. And yes, they might know how to teach a lesson. But the truth of the matter is, they never have progressed internally past being milk fed as a Christian. Because if the meat of the Word of God is working in your heart, you're able to discern and exercise between good and evil. And where the meat of the Word is not at work, like you're on the milk of the Word, you're still acting like a baby. You still, if you're still throwing temper tantrums, if you're throwing comparisons, if you're envying, you're divisive, that is the mark of a babyish, immature, dwarfish Christian. And he describes it. He says the serious mark of their life and their spirit was there. Was, he, he told them, he said, you have envying, strife, and divisions. He says, your carnal walk as men and not spiritual. Now, he said that in chapter 3. Guess what? Now we're in chapter 13. It's starting to make sense now. They're walking as men. They were taking these coveted gifts, which were the gifts of God, given by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were to be used for the edifying of the body of Christ. How many understand tonight that spiritual gifts are for the edifying of the body? But there was no love behind it. There was no love through it. It was like, well, God, I deserve this. It's my gift. And so notice verse 11. How poignantly Paul put verse 11 there. Would you notice three words Paul uses in verse 11 that coincides with everything he said earlier? Notice the word spake. The word understood and the word thought. Gifts, the speaking gifts, the gifts of knowledge, the gifts of understanding. When I was a child, he's telling them, when I was, when I was small, when I was younger, when I was a young babe in Christ, I spoke as a child. He said, I understood as a child. I thought it so. But when I became a man, now you can refer to this as physical maturity, but it also can apply to spiritual maturity. He says, when I became spiritually mature, he said, he said, then I put away childish things. Now Paul's saying this. You may be physically and, and maturity-wise an adult, but your spiritual life is that of a child. That's what he's saying there. He says, when that which is perfect, when that which in part is done away, that which is, he's talked about here, he says, when that which is perfect has come, that which in part should be done away. He said, listen, you have to understand something. You are exalting your spiritual life based on gifts that God gave you, but because there's no love behind it, the truth of the matter is, you're still a child. You're still a baby in Jesus Christ. You're divisive. You're filled with strife. You're filled with envies. Hey! Right now, I wasn't going to say it, but I'm going to tell you because I need to get finished here. I am burning up inside. I'm between the extreme of righteous indignation and extreme brokenness. I'm trying to keep a family from leaving this church because they've been hurt 
over several months, maybe even several years, by malicious and hurtful words, are people that I would equate just like the Corinthian believers who are prominent in the who are prominent within the the body life of Corinth, of the church at Corinth, where people extolled them for their faith and people extolled them for their for their speaking abilities and people extolled them, extolled them because of this and that and all the other. But in, behind all that, there is a meanness. I'm broken. I'm in shock. And I'm broken. I'm going to tell you something, church member. Especially if you have some kind of a personality influence here. I work myself very hard. And I pray myself very hard. To get people in church. To love them and keep them in church. I don't need you running them away. I don't need you telling them to go off and tell them all their problems. God didn't call you to be the policeman and God certainly didn't call you to be their pastor. Now I'm going to tell you tonight, you're doing that kind of stuff and you know who you are. And if, you don't, if you're not watching, somebody that's watching knows who you are. You need to stop that stuff right now. You're hurting the church of the living God. Put aside your childish things, your strife and your division and your gossip and your malicious words. And why don't you just decide, you need to repent. You're either not saved or you need to repent and get right with God. So why don't you tell me to your face, I am telling your face and I'm going to come after you after this. The word perfect. Do you know sins of the tongue, James chapter 3, sins of the tongue, strife and envy, you know how James describes it? It's earthly, sensual, and devilish. Devilish! If you're practicing that kind of Christianity, you're going around and ripping people apart and telling what's wrong with them and attacking this, attacking that. Let me tell you something. God describes that kind of work as being right out of the pits of hell. That's right. You're not spiritual if you're doing that kind of stuff. The Bible says if your hand offends, cut it off. Your, your foot offends, cut it off. I'm going to tell you, some of you, you need to zip up your mouth and just be quiet. Stop being a busybody. It's none of your business what people do. It's not your, not your, it's, they're not your sheep. You say, what's well, my business? No, it's not your business. Not to send people away. Make people hurt. And notice what Paul says now. He goes to verse 12. He says, now we see through a glass darkly. Now, what's he talking about there? Well, he's saying this, okay? Back in Corinth, they were famous for the manufacturing of what we would call mirrors today. And those mirrors they had were, were, were basically like sheets of metal that were polished. And they would see the reflection, but not like glass. Not like a true mirror. So sometimes you would look at it, and when you looked at it, it was kind of a darkish, it was kind of a shrouded image at the time. You would see something, but not the completeness. Now, there's what Paul's saying here. We, but now we see through a glass darkly. We don't have the whole picture right now. We don't understand why God put this trial in life. We don't understand all these things that's going on. We don't understand how God is working this. But he says, but then, face to face. What's he talking about face to face? The judgment seat of Christ. We can't see it clearly now about my mistakes and problems and my sins. But he said, then... I will face to face. 
I will. And you know what Paul's kind of giving them? He's telling them, listen to me, believe we're almost done. He's telling them, here's a day of reckoning coming. You may not get it now, but you will one day when you come face to face with, with Jesus Christ. When you come face to face with Jesus Christ, he says, he says then, then shall I know even, even as also I am known. Now that's a convicting phrase there. Then shall I know even as also I am known. Let me tell you what I believe he's saying there. You will know you are practicing strife and envy and things of that nature. Because that's an unconfessed sin if you're still doing that. He says, you will know even as he knows you. You will know even as he knows you. So what's going to happen there, you'll know that you didn't mature past being a babe in Christ. You'll know that you didn't add too much more to your faith. You may not have got past the knowledge area of life. You added to your faith virtue and the virtue not, but you never got past that. You didn't make it all. Each other. Hey, listen, one of the things God's going to evaluate us on, First, Second Peter chapter 1, verses 5 to 8, he's going to evaluate us how far up the staircase did we go. How much of a refining process did, 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 was he able to use in our life? And he's going to look at that, and he says here in verse 12, Then shall I know, even as also I am known. So Paul, so John says this, And now little children abide in him, that when he shall appear face to face, we may have confidence, and listen to this, and not be ashamed at his appearing. Then shall I know, even as I know, there will be shame, because you'll be known, you will know, even as you know. We don't have full knowledge now, but we will in eternity. We will in heaven. Charity never faileth. Charity's permanent. Then notice the last thing. That which will fade. That which is faithful. That which is the focus. But what you notice as we close tonight, that which is to be followed. Look at chapter 14, verse 1. Follow after charity and desire spiritual gifts, but rather that you may prophesy. Focus on those first three words. Pursue the virtue of of agape love in your life. We need a revival of agape love. Loving like God loves, being sacrificial, complimenting one another, praising one another, encouraging one another, praying for one another, building up one another. Who cares? Who cares you've got the gift of prophecy? Who cares what your gift is? If you don't have love, profits you nothing. Who cares you're, you're a great sow-winner if you don't have love? Who, who cares you serve in all these, these ministries if you don't have love? Who cares? Who, who, care, who cares if you, go to, if you go to three services? We do care, but I'm just saying, if, but if you don't have love, you're nothing. Zero value. For then shall I know even as I am known. That's pretty scary. Let's pray for a revival of love. I want to encourage you tonight. We're going to have an altar call. And let me just say this. I don't care if it's COVID-19. COVID-19 should not stymie the altar call of God or the voice of the Holy Spirit. I hope you'll join me in kneeling down and asking God that the flesh should be crucified. 
And the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts to the Holy Spirit. Would you love? Would we love as God even loves? Be followers of God as dear children. And walk in love, even as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. An offering and a sacrifice to God as a sweet-smelling savor.